Philippi was an outpost in the Roman Empire in the East. Patriotism and nationalism were its hallmarks. Paul writes to the church there to remind them of their call to something higher, a power greater than any nation or military. Jesus is the one true Lord, the only one worthy of anyone's devotion. But Jesus is not one to lord his power over us. Jesus is the God who gave up everything to serve out of love. And we as followers are called to follow his example. This is a series about following the ways of Jesus. And in the midst of anything that comes against us, know that joy and peace because Jesus, the king of the universe, has come so close as to live within us. Hey everyone, it's good to have you with us if we haven't met before. My name is Raul, and this week I cut about five inches off of my hair, which is wild. Um, yeah, the, grand, the floor at, of the salon where I was at was completely covered in hair. Um, I've never seen that much hair before in my life. Uh, but yeah, so it feels, feels great. I feel like a brand new man. Um, we are continuing our series on the letter to the Philippians. This is week three of our series, and we've reached the end of chapter one. And in reading this passage this week, I've asked myself the question that I'm kind of bringing before us is what does our faith look like in uncertainty? It's a question that I think is good for us to revisit from time and time again. Um, but today we're looking at a whatever happens kind of faith, a faith that stands firm in uncertain times, a faith that stands firm in whatever may happen. Um, and so here is Philippians 1, 20 through 30, read by Caleb. So welcome up, Caleb. Philippians 1, 20 through 30. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Caleb. So this passage marks a transition in the letter. 
It goes from Paul sharing about his experience to an exhortation for the church. And as we've mentioned, Paul is writing from prison. He was likely in Rome bound to a soldier of the Praetorian Guard. Now, these were the elite of the elite within Rome's army. They were the emperor's personal guard. They had the loyalty of the Secret Service, the skill of the Navy SEALs, and the jurisdiction of the National Guard. And Paul was attached to one. He slept attached to one. He wrote attached to one. He ate attached to one. He did everything with a soldier watching. This was the ancient version of a high-security prison. Except Paul wasn't a criminal. He was imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Now, the gospel means good news. And in the Roman world, whenever an emperor had a child, heralds would go from the center, from Rome. From, uh, they would go from Rome to town to town, bringing the good news that the lineage of the emperor is going to continue. And so Paul, like the angels in Luke chapter 2, also brings good news of a heavenly king named Jesus. And the Roman authorities, hearing this competing announcement, found it politically provoking. And so they put Paul in prison. And as he wrote this letter, as Paul is penning these words, there are two outcomes that hang in the balance. Paul's freedom or Paul's execution. Life or death. And Paul and his readers had to live in this tension. Now you can imagine the anxiety they must have been feeling because Paul was their founder, their teacher, the one who told them about Jesus. They shared meals together, they prayed for one another, they wept together, they laughed together. There was a familial partnership and a platonic intimacy between them. But notice that in reading this, Paul's attitude isn't one of anxiety. The tone of what he's writing isn't a sorrowful one. It isn't a defeated one. There is an underlying confidence in his writing, even though at any point he could be executed. See, for Paul, though there are two outcomes, the future is the same. Verse 20 says, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. When I was a middle school pastor at my previous church, we prayed for a youth leader at a sister church of ours um, because he was diagnosed with cancer and he was 24. And his case was so rare that they took him to City of Hope to observe him. And the cancer that he was diagnosed with is one that often, um, that in, 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 in most cases, has only shown up in women in their late 70s. And so none of this was making sense. So the church that I was a part of, we, we prayed for him constantly. But the more we prayed, the worse he got. And as his health deteriorated, he got more and more visitors saying goodbye. And one of our church leaders went to go visit him and they reported back their visit and they shared uh, one of the last things I heard from him. During, during this visit and among the last things he said was these words from Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain. 
And we prayed for a different outcome. We all wanted Miguel to live. Miguel wanted to live. But what strikes me about his legacy is the confidence that he had in Jesus' words. That he knew whether he lived or died that his future would be the same. Miguel, like Paul, knew that their futures were wrapped up in the presence of Jesus. And so whether we live or die, our future is in Jesus. And though there are things about death that are uncertain to us, as Christians, we can be confident, like Paul, of one thing, the resurrection. That what's ahead for us is the very thing that Jesus experienced, resurrection. The Bible calls Jesus the pioneer of our faith, meaning that he was the first to go. Because he was resurrected as the first, as the pioneer, we can be assured that when our time comes, we'll be resurrected to Jesus. And so we, though we may be uncertain about what that will look like, will we or will we not have chiseled abs? Whether or not there will be hot Cheetos in heaven? We can be certain about Jesus and his promise to raise us up with him. And this was Paul's dilemma, wanting to be with Christ in bodily resurrection while also wanting to be with the Philippians. Paul's personal desire was to be with Jesus, but his pastoral desire was to be with the church. And so you can imagine Paul being pulled in two opposite directions. He states, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. See, Paul's letting us in on his thought process. In the uncertainty, he's comparing the two outcomes as any of us would. But he's assured of this, that being with Jesus is better. But on the other hand, Paul's been so shaped by Jesus so touched by his love, so energized by his power that he can't help but consider the other option, living for the benefit of others. Paul can't help but think about this outcome, one that considers the needs of others. And for thousands of years, Christian mystics and spiritual directors have said repeatedly that the closer we grow to Jesus, the more we become like him in our character and in our actions the more we get in his presence, the more we allow his words to, to spring in us, the more we allow his life to shape us and his spirit to take root in us, the more we begin to change. And the result is this, that as we begin to allow Jesus to shape us, that we live in a posture of service to others. See, maturity in the faith is one that is oriented towards service. It's one that isn't driven by self-centeredness and consumption, but one that can recognize when it is more necessary for you that I remain. One that can recognize the needs that others have of us. It's one that doesn't go for personal gain. It's one that isn't looking for what we can get out of our faith. Instead, it's about allowing Jesus' words, I have come not to serve, but to be served, to become our words. 
And if I could combine these words of Jesus with what Paul is saying here, it would sound like this. To be with Jesus would serve me, but it would serve you if I stay. And so this leads me to ask, who needs you? Who is in need of your faith? Who needs you to be praying? Who needs the service that you can offer? See, the Philippians needed Paul more than he needed to be with Jesus. But on the flip side, what do you need? We have to recognize that we need one another, don't we? See, this week I needed Noah's text saying that he was praying for me. I needed Nellie's encouragement. I needed to see so many of you praying and worshiping at our 24-hour prayer event because it increased my own faith. It showed me that actually I'm not as alone as I often feel. And elsewhere in Paul's letter, Paul expresses his need for their prayers and his gratitude for their generosity. Paul needed the Philippians, and the Philippians needed Paul, but the situation remains the same. His outcome is unclear. As Ed said last week, Paul is grounded in reality. He knows his situation, he's hopeful, but he doesn't want the Philippian church to be unaware. And so he gives them an exhortation just in case he doesn't see them again. And the long exhortation that goes from chapter 2 to the end of chapter 3 begins with, whatever happens. Whatever happens. Now, I don't like those words. How do you feel about those words? I don't want to hear whatever happens because it suggests one thing, ambiguity. And when you're trying to make plans with someone, you don't want to hear, yeah, whatever happens, I'll let you know. I want to know what happens. <laughs> I don't do well with uncertainty. But it's in this ambiguity that Paul gives this command. Live together in a manner worthy of Christ's gospel. Now that word, live together, in the Greek literally means be citizens. Be citizens. This would have been familiar language for the Philippians. Because Philippi was a Roman colony. And most of its um, population either served in the Roman military. And the city as a Roman colony had a special status in all of the Roman Empire. It was considered a mini-Rome. So, so the people lived with the benefits and privileges as Roman citizens. Now what I believe is happening here is the Spirit is prompting Paul to write this. And saying, instead of being a mini-Rome, be a mini-Christ. Live as citizens of Christ's kingdom. Paul repeats this again in 3.20. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, 
We look forward to a Savior that comes from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is who we are. We may live in America, we may live in Los Angeles, but we belong to Jesus' kingdom. We are extensions of Jesus' city, and together we are outposts for the kingdom. Miniature realms where the kingdom activity takes place. And I think immigrant communities can really teach us about this. They show us what it's like to bring aspects of one place to another. It's what makes neighborhoods like K-Town, Boyle Heights, Tytown, and Glendale so great because they are like outposts of places far away. And Paul is inviting us to see ourselves as dual citizens, citizens of this place, as people who engage it, who contribute to it, who uh, hold it accountable, but ultimately we belong to another realm. We belong to Jesus and his city. We are citizens of heaven. So if we have any uncertainty about the future, if we have any anxiety about the state of this place and the shakiness of this place, we can have comfort that we belong to a realm that cannot be shaken. We belong to the city of Jesus, and of his reign there is no end. And I think at this particular time, this is a reality that we need to hold, don't we? When physical places are being shaken up by violence, by bombs, by pandemics, by ethnic hostilities, we can look forward with hope in Jesus that we belong to him. And so this sounds great, doesn't it? Philippians are probably thinking, Paul, that's great. I love what you have to say. Great little play on words there. But what if you don't have someone like Paul leading the way? How do we respond in the absence of our pillars? Who or what are our pillars in the faith? I think the more important question is, how is our faith in the absence of our pillars? And that's the challenge the Philippians were facing. Paul says, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm. And I've noticed that there's two directions that people can go when there's an absence of leadership, two responses. Either we regress, all chaos is unleashed, there's no rules, nothing's off the table, anything goes. Or you stand firm. You stay the course, you remain, you hold on to what you've been taught, you hold on to what you've been given. Paul's exhortation is the latter, to stand firm. He's saying, I may not come back to you, you may not hear from me again, but whatever happens, 
in the uncertainty, be the many Christs that you are and stand firm. In this uncertainty, stand firm. But stand firm in what? Stand firm in the one spirit. Now, there's disagreement among scholars about what Paul means here. Some read one spirit to mean heart or mind. But he could have used those literal words. Instead, he uses the word pneuma, the word to describe the spirit, the Holy Spirit. Paul's life was so infused with the spirit that it's difficult to dissociate from understanding one spirit to mean the one Holy Spirit. And I think reading it this way enhances our understanding because it suggests that even in Paul's absence, even in his potential absence, the Philippians still had the spirit. And so when our pillars go away, when the things that we rely on fail us, the spirit is there. In other words, the Spirit is our pillar. The Spirit can't be owned. The Spirit can't be bought or manipulated. We can't claim to have rights on the Spirit. He is, as Paul says, the one Spirit, meaning the Spirit given to all of God's people. The Spirit in Jewish understanding, in Paul's Jewish understanding, is ruach, meaning breath. The breath of God that gives and sustains life. Now, this is significant because the Philippians had a little bit of a unity problem. There was some division going on. There were some people that weren't getting along. And what Paul is implying to the whole congregation is that they are sharing the same breath. And a breath cannot be divided. The Spirit cannot be divided. The third person of the Trinity is shared among us. And so let us allow him to be the pillar that breathes life into us, not just as individuals, but as a community. I've been guilty of making the Spirit the thing that sets me apart, particularly from other Christians. But reading it this way, challenges me not to think of the Spirit as the person who divides us, but the, but the person who binds us to one another. Paul continues the exhortation by saying, strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. Now remember, emphasis on one here, there was some uh, issues around unity happening in the church. Now striving together this is the language of sport and combat. What Paul most likely had in mind were the gladiatorial games. So think Russell Crowe and his band of gladiators, um, which is also the reason why I think most uh, straight men think about the Roman Empire. is isn't because they've read about it in books. It's because they've seen Russell Crowe. Um, but in the gladiator... Russell Crowe's character goes from being a high-ranking general to an outcast gladiator. And in the first few fights as a gladiator, he makes a realization 
that if they fight on their own, they're slaughtered. He knows that their best chance for survival is coordination. It's fighting together, and that is the way to stay alive. And the same is true in our faith, that isolation and division bring our faith to ruin. But praying together, partnering side by side, enduring together is a way that we can go the distance in our faith. And so who are you striving with? Are we striving alone? What I love about who God is is that he provides people. And so if we find ourselves alone in this, if we find ourselves isolated in the faith, can I encourage you to ask God to bring people that will come and encourage your faith? And so, so far, Paul's exhortation is this, in my absence, you have the spirit and you have each other. And he wraps it up this way in verse 28. Stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, like Russell Crowe, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Those who opposed them were likely members of the church who failed to give up their loyalty to the emperor. There was a political edge to the opposition the church was facing. Because remember, Christianity was politically provocative. To say that Jesus is Lord meant that the emperor was not. And so among nationalist patriots, that doesn't sound too good. Now, I'm not much of a fighter. I don't like to argue. I don't enjoy debates. When my friend was getting his iPad, his uh, iPod stolen um, at a skate park when we were 14, I watched from the sidelines. <laughs> yeah. You don't want me if you're getting in a fight. <laughs> I am not the person to call. I'm much happier to step aside and allow others come to the defense of people. But the Philippians, however, no longer had the luxury of Paul coming to their defense. By this point, they needed to face their opponents on their own. And I think what Paul is encouraging them to do is to rely on their testimony to rely on the authenticity of their faith. He's saying, I won't always come to defend you. I won't always come to bail you out. It's on you now. Don't be afraid. The testimony of your unity with one another in the power of the Spirit is your defense for the gospel. It's actually a sign that your faith is true. And that's the kind of maturing work the Spirit wants for each of us. That we won't be afraid to give a defense for why we believe what we believe. But in uncertain times, our faith could, could get shaken, can it? We second guess what we've believed. We second guess Jesus and his words. 
But what Paul is encouraging us to do is to hold to the gospel, the simple gospel, that Jesus is good, that he loves you, that he's with you. And he says, allow that to be your defense. In uncertainty, rely on that. And so to end, if I can have the band come up, I want to reiterate the question at the start. How does our faith look in uncertainty? Are you in some kind of ambiguity? Are you in a, do you find yourself in a fog? Is, and is that fog taking a toll on your faith? Because what the Spirit wants to do is put within us a whatever happens kind of faith. One that stands firm in the Spirit. One that strives alongside of others and one that isn't afraid. The Spirit comes to lead us into all truth. To establish us in Jesus. And I know in uncertainty, in in Um, ambiguity it can feel like we're falling through the sky but what Jesus comes to do is he is the ground beneath our feet as we sang earlier this morning he is the rock that we can stand on and so do you need to be grounded the the grounds for this entire letter, the core of this entire letter is chapter two, which is all about Jesus. We'll get into it at Weekend Away. It's all about Jesus. And in the same way that Jesus is the grounds for this letter, my hope is that he can be the grounds for us the one that binds us together. Because if, we, if we're honest with ourselves, there will always be uncertainty. Who knows where we'll be in five years? Who knows where we'll be tomorrow? There will always be some form of ambiguity, but the conviction of the Christian faith is that regardless of what happens, Jesus is with you. Jesus is good. He is the rock that cannot be shaken. And so this morning, I want to encourage us to come to him again. Would you stand with me?